Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. In just a few weeks, the new miniseries based on Stephen King's epic work, The Stand, will be coming to CBS All Access. And to get ready for that, as well as a Pandavision cast that Ashley Coffin and myself are going to do about that, today we have two great guests on to review the book itself. We're going to dive into Stephen King's work, The Stand, talking about the characters, talking about the choices they make, talking about the mythos and lore of the world, and just kind of diving into all of our thoughts about the book and especially what it might look like in the TV show to come. So all that and more in just a few moments after this commercial break, we have no control over it. Welcome back. I'm Matthew. I'm your host. And as I said, I've got two great guests joining me today, uh, both people who are new to the cast, but have been uh, longtime fans and listeners and also uh, good friends or family of mine, and people have been talking about these kind of issues for a long time. And in both cases, I'm really excited to have them on the cast. Uh, the first is Susan Galasso. Susan is a longtime friend of mine from the role-playing games world, uh, who has a, a strong background in literature and writing. And um, I know she was really excited when I when I mentioned this book was one we'd be talking about. So Susan, glad to have you on. How are you feeling about this today? I'm feeling good. Excited to... Uh, uh have reread the book after you know first reading it i think as a a young teen so uh uh-huh. sort of an interesting experience to think about updating it into a new format <laughs> for sure for sure um also joining me is my brother-in-law Stephen cox uh steve is married to my sister um uh, and he and i have, have become close ever since the uh he entered our family's life and i've often been chatting about uh, my podcast and the questions we come up the questions that come up, um, he and I have had a number of great ethical conversations, but also as a different media. And so when I put the word out that we we're doing the stand, Stephen was also really interested and I'm really excited to have your thoughts on it. Stephen, how are you doing? How are you feeling about this today? Oh, I am just excited to go here, Matthew. I, Stephen King is in my blood. I'm literally nice. named after the guy. So I'm Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. So like just the good and the bad of Stephen King like, was just <laughs> infused in me on growing up. Well, that's, that makes sense, because this book has a lot of the good and some of the bad of Stephen yeah. King, so that'll be fitting. Well, and let me just give a... I imagine some of our listeners are people who have read the book some point in the past. Some of you may be folks who are looking forward to the miniseries um, and haven't read the book, but are kind of, you know, you want to get get a sense of it going in. Um, we will be spoiling quite a lot of things about the book, um, which I imagine will be spoilers for the TV show as well, but... Given that this is an adaptation of something that is was originally written 40 years ago, was then re-released in a new version with a lot added 30 years ago, but nonetheless, that's so much time, I have no idea how much the TV show is or is not going to stick close to the plot, So, but consider yourself that if you want to really start that show having not known anything about it, probably hit pause, maybe go back and listen to this later. But if you either are a fan of the book, or you've read the book, or you just don't care, you want to know more about what's happening in the show... Definitely we're glad to hear you. Um, and let me just give a kind of quick summary, and then we can dive into a couple different questions I want to explore. So the book opens with a super flu vaccine being released into the world, and the government's not doing very well at handling it, and the result is that 97% of the population uh, all around the world is completely wiped out. So total fantasy world, nothing we can at all relate to today. Um but then most of the book is about what happens in the aftermath and is about people trying to gather together and to rebuild communities. 
and eventually things gather into two communities on either sides of the Rocky Mountains, one in Boulder, Colorado, one in Las Vegas, Nevada, the Boulder being the forces of good and light and the uh, forces in Las Vegas gathering under a kind of a devil figure. And as the, the title says, the book is about the epic stand that the forces of good make against the forces of darkness. Um, so that's kind of a quick summary. And let me just kind of start with what are your both general impressions of both your thoughts about the book and your thoughts when you reread it uh, just recently? Um, well, okay. So when you first brought up, um, I, I haven't reread it super recently, but mm -hmm. uh, like last year. And so when you brought up the idea that there was going to be this new miniseries coming out and you wanted to talk about it, um, I got really excited because um, this is like in a lot of ways uh, and maybe Susan will, will disagree and, and, you know, and kind of point more toward the dark tower. Um, but in a lot of ways, I feel like this is kind of a quintessential Stephen King mm -hmm. um, because it, it's got horror, it's got uh, social commentary, it's got very everyday people. Um, he writes everyday people in a way that uh, has some very serious blind spots, but I also find uh, really compelling. Um, yeah. And it has the quintessential Stephen King ending. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the um, there are chapters in this book that like past sections of the book that are titled the circle opens, the circle closes or the circle reopens. And that exact language is used as section titles. in I think five different ones of his books, I mean, he's very, <laughs> very fond of this idea. Um, Susan, what about you? How did you feel when we started talking about this? And now that you've given the book a good reread? Um, I was excited to reread it. First of all, I started reading Stephen King much younger than I should have probably. And so uh -huh. I think that I was probably 14 or 15 when I read this book. Um, so, and I finished my reread actually at four in the morning this morning. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was glad to see, first of all, that Stephen King still is one of those authors that has the power to kind of draw me into a, re like, the book trance so that I don't realize that I haven't put it down until four in the morning. Yeah. Uh, I do agree that this is kind of, sort of a, a crash course in all of the good and the bad of Stephen King's writing. It's got sort of that sweeping scope, both in terms of laser going from laser focus on like individual character interactions, all the way to, you know, cosmic forces of good and evil that he kind of likes to work through all of his, uh, all of his writing. Um, and, you know, of course, rereading it now, I can't help but kind of see the in the uh, foremost ethical struggles in it kind of in light of how we've been doing in our own, uh, you know, yeah. thankfully nowhere near as virulent pandemic, but uh, sort of all of those questions of, you know, how do we as human beings take care of each other are kind of in uncomfortable close focus right now definitely and it, so it's funny i i reread the book in the last week or so as well but about you know however math is hard but back when this all first started in in march when the pandemic really was getting kind of locked down i kept thinking about this book and 
I wound up, we'll talk about later the different parts of it, but frankly, my favorite parts of the book are just the slow process of the flu spreading and everything that's happening. And, and we'll talk more about just why that is such a great part of the book. But I found I wanted to reread that as I was reading all about COVID in our own world. Um, and I've talked to friends who thought that was a very odd response because they wanted nothing to do with it. And I frankly heard from a number of people who think they would normally be really interested in this show. They feel like right now, a TV show about a flu that is far more deadly than anyone's ready for is just not something they can take. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm curious for you all, was, was it hard to read it given what's going on? Or did you find it was actually sort of almost cathartic in a way or just helpful to sort of be like, oh, okay, it's not as bad as it could be. Um, what, what was, how was reading it in this moment, in this current moment for you? One thing that I think, um, particularly in the early stages of the book, um, before it gets sort of pulled into the, you know, larger, more supernatural climax of the, of the story itself. Uh, one thing that resonated with me was that, uh, Stephen King, talks in, you know, shows in intimate detail all of these little human moments of grief and exhaustion Yeah, that, you know, I recognized as, you know, being moments that I've had myself, moments that I know, you know, everyone that I've talked to has had in terms of having to figure out how to deal with something that is so far beyond the scope of the general scope of tragedy that would enter, you know, personal life. So in that way, it was a little cathartic, I suppose, mm -hmm. um, as well as being a little bit reassuring in that, you know, I could say, well, at least 99.7% of the population has not died of COVID. <laughs> and at least COVID wasn't manufactured by our government. Right. Yes. Also, that, that is an important part of this whole story is that in the stand, it is a specific, um, uh, basically a weapons, a, a bioweapons laboratory has a breakdown and the virus gets loose because of a security breakdown and then the uh, in the early parts of the story some of the hardest parts are the government actively trying to more deal with the panic than the actual problem itself which again is unfortunately very relevant to our own world yeah i think one of the things i really like about this book is it, it really gets to kind of especially through the the character of glenn kind of Stephen King's like views on society and humanity. Um, Glenn Bateman it, is a sociologist character who is kind of the stand-in voice. I think, as you said, for well, here's what I think society will how it will break down, and here's how it should rebuild, and things like that. Right, and he he brings like a very kind of libertarian attitude to it. I think at one point he even says like, if you get three or four people together, they make a community. If you make five, if you get five or six people together, they make outcasts. And if you yeah. get seven or eight people together, they make war. Um, and I think it's important that the super flu, Captain Trips, uh, was manufactured by the government because, in a way, uh, the outbreak comes kind of at the height of all of the, you know, 
military industrial complex and kind of the evils of America or, or the West or, you know, however King describes it at various points. Um, and, uh, and so like, I think like the fact that the super flu is made by the, the government and the government can't do anything about it. There's like a message there about governments being kind of more harmful than they are actually helpful to people. Right. As, mm-hmm. as well as just the whole idea of marshalling powers outside their control. And that's certainly one that comes up with all the sort of struggles between good and evil that comes up in the story. Right. It's interesting to think about in terms of, you know, when The Stand was written, it was sort of the height of the Cold War and sus- suspicion of government secrecy on a sort of an international uh, pol- political scale and now COVID is coming up at sort of, I don't, I don't know that it's necessarily accurate to hol- call it sort of the height of another sort of conspira- internal conspiracy theory fervor, but, uh, you know, with sort of internal suspicion of our own government, not necessarily suspicion of the international intergovernmental situation. Oh, yeah. yeah, no, I think it, it is an interesting reading this book that is very much set in a particular time and place and now translating it across to today. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about this more later. Part of that comes out in, there's a lot of commentary about race and gender and, and developmental disabilities that are really not comfortable, I think, to read 30, 40 years later. <laughs> no. Um, but I, but I'll be very curious to see how they kind of update the book, you know? Um, when, and so let's dive into some of the stuff about the book itself, because I, I want to start actually by throwing out my, my take on this book, I think, is kind of – it's a very strange book, but here's why I love it. And and the best way I can describe this is – have you both seen the movie Titanic? Yes. Oh, yeah. Titanic is not my favorite movie. Um, I, I, I just didn't get into the love story as much as a lot of other people did. I thought a lot of it was very contrived. You know, I'm sure about to get some hate mail. Fair enough. What, what the part about that movie that I loved, though – was that once they said, okay, this boat is sinking, there were now all of these beautiful little scenes of how people at all levels of you know class and background and position on the boat, how they were all dealing with the same crisis. And I think I've started describing this book as one that has an awful lot of breadth, but very little depth, because, and I, I definitely want to talk about this, it feels to me like at the, at the end of the day, there isn't very much plot in this book. Like, the people move across the country. They have this great stand. There's not very much agency, at least as I read it. Um, but what pulls me in is, as, as I think you were both saying earlier, it's all those little stories. You know, it's in the first couple hundred pages we get, not just we find out that the newspaper man died of the flu, but we find out... Everything the newspaper person has been on for the last five days, and by the way, the person he plays poker with, and what they've been up to for the last five, there's just all these incredible human stories about people dying, and then people resisting the government, and then people not wanting to believe things. And um, and then even as the story goes on, I think in the same way, I don't really find the plot itself that compelling. What I find compelling is just these stories of how people are responding to all these things that are going on. Um, what, where, where do you all stand on that? Um, did, did, did you get much more into the plot than I did? Or did, did, do you also really enjoy all this kind of like 
the full viewpoint of human society as it goes through these traumatic events? That, in a, in a way, I think you hit on, like, the ethic of the book, in a way. Mm. Um, because uh, there's this enormous thing, this world-changing cataclysm happening. And you're seeing lots of really personal vignettes by individual people. And while this thing is happening, both the flu and the later sort of supernatural thing that's going on, um, they're happening in a way regardless of what characters do. And right. um, they're not going to change it. They're not going to stop the flu. They're not going to stop this confrontation between good and evil. What they are going to do is decide where they stand. Um, and so those individual stories kind of make up, yeah, it's maybe a little shallower than we might like, but I think that's what makes up the story. And that's kind of what the story just is about. Right. I agree. Um, I think that uh, it's interesting uh, what you say in terms of not having a lot of agency, because I think for many of the main characters, particularly, you know, Harold and Nadine and uh, Larry Underwood uh, have these moments where they're kind of confronted with a very stark choice between kind of going along with the fatalistic interpretation of submitting to what the uh, what events are f- forcing on them, actions or or viewpoints that are kind of being forced on them, and you know having this very clear moment that I could choose to be a different person. Now that the old order of the world has kind of been swept away. And I think that in a lot of ways, if we didn't have like, I think we don't even really get a shadow of what the eventual good and evil showdown is going to be until four or 500 pages into the book. And mm-hmm. you know, if we didn't have that first four or 500 pages of kind of going on this very personal and horrifying journey with each of those characters, much as I occasionally wondered, like, you know, how much is this actually going to tie in later on? You know, that, that sort of internal moment of how are we going to react to events completely beyond our control? What kind of person am I going to be? Wouldn't have the same impact as it did. Yeah. And Nadine and Larry are kind of the best characters to demonstrate that. Because they both kind of start, like, sort of marked in a way. So you don't know whether they're going to sift out good or sift out bad in the end. But the choices that they make ultimately sift them and and don't, they change their destinies, even if they don't change the overall destiny. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a great point because I, I do feel like that for a lot of characters, there's very little agency. Like, they're on a path. They're clearly marked either for the light or for the darkness. And I think I think that's a great point. Those three in particular, um, Larry, who starts out as a kind of like newly popular one-hit wonder musician who's kind of very selfish and a, a taker, as he's described, and he finds some real humanity in himself. Um, Harold, who is kind of the unfortunate stereotype, as we've now found 30 years later, very, very true. I mean, the he's the definition of the fedora-wearing milady fuckboy. <laughs> I think is the best way we can put it today, who becomes very jealous that the woman he loves is into someone else. And so he just he, he lets that resentment and anger feed on him and feed on him and feed on him. And 
instead of having an internet to go and troll people on, he winds up turning violent. And then Nadine, who is this woman who is marked to be the, you know, the bearer of the Antichrist, the 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 lover of the the demon who's in, in charge of all this on the other side. And she has a real moment of like maybe being pulled back to the good, but but she doesn't make that choice. Um mm-hmm. But other than the three of them, does anyone really have any actual agency in this book? In any huh. kind of major way? I don't think so. I'm thinking I'm trying to think if there is a character that ever was really kind of other than maybe those three uh, Larry, Nadine, and Harold, that was ever really on a tipping point of whether they could have gone either way. Uh, right. It sort of seems like, you know, even if as they recognize the moment that they're making these choices, it doesn't really feel to, to them or to us like they could have chosen any differently. Yeah, the one example that kind of comes to my head is... Um, Lloyd, the character of Lloyd, who ends up being the walking dude's right-hand man. Um, He's kind of explicitly given a choice, but that choice is between starving to death in his prison cell or joining the side of darkness, Mm -hmm. which isn't super much of a choice. Yeah, it's kind of a, you know, coerced choice, (laughs) we can call it. On a recent episode of the Superhero Ethics, we did an episode on time travel, and my uh, podcast partner for that, Rob McKenzie, brought up a movie that he describes as a perfect example of logical time travel, which is Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. And I thought this was funny, but then he demonstrated how once you buy the internal logic of it, the internal logic of it is utterly and completely consistent. Because the reason why it gets around all of the paradoxes that normally come with time loops and stuff like that is that the characters have absolutely zero agency in the story. Every event in the movie has already been predetermined from long before the characters were born. And so you're getting to watch this great story happen, but there's no agency whatsoever because mm-hmm. you know the decisions everyone's going to make because it's already been set in stone by time. And that discussion kind of helped me think, like, we love human agency, uh, and a human agency makes a great story, but but maybe not all stories need it. And I, I think that's kind of where I, I wound up kind of feeling about The Stand and thinking this is kind of King's point almost, is that... Like, I, most of the time when I think about this book, I think the big flaw of it is that, I mean, the ending, and we'll get to talking about it for sure, it's all predetermined. Like, nothing, you know, nothing that our characters do actually matters much. And I, I guess for me, I'm saying that I feel like this book challenges my view that maybe you can have a great book without agency, because it is more about... What do people do when we're caught up in powers that are beyond us? And how do we react in that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Um, did, did, I, I know, Susan, especially when we were talking, you were getting very frustrated by the lack of agency of some of the characters. What, where did you kind of wind up feeling about it? I think that, you know, having kind of those moments of, you know, it's very clear that, especially, and I know you mentioned, you know, that going into um, some of the, you know, continual issues with King's writing and the way he handles, you know, characters who are not white or not male or that uh, he's, he's kind of using them very symbolically. And I think that the treatment of a lot of the women in this book was sort of like that, like, you know, they were being kind of, 
used as pawns and property in mm-hmm. a way that I would really hope that, uh, and I mean, this kind of ties back into Glenn as the sort of viewpoint character. It seems to be saying something about Glenn's and possibly King's view of what kind of, you know, how much agency we really have over human nature, whether that kind of uh, bartering of agency for safety or sublimation Sublimation. of human, of free will to, you know, human biology and, you know, sort of the fight or flight response, whether there's, you know, a way that we'd get around that, even if we were able to kind of wipe wipe the slate clean and start over. Mm. It, it, that's I, I keep thinking of the fact that sort of once they kind of all get together and they start going to Boulder um, the women are increasingly referred to as like so-and-so's woman mm-hmm. yeah yeah there's definitely I think I think there's a number of those kind of problems and to me the two biggest really are the way that um, women are treated in the book um, very much they fall into they're very much defined by their sexuality in many ways. It's like the kind of horror Madonna kind of complexes. Right. Um, and also the way uh, disabled characters are treated in that there's a, um, a deaf mute character who is treated like, I mean, he's a hero of the book, but in very much a kind of like the noble, you know, noble suffering disabled mm-hmm. person. And then there's also a developmentally disabled person who is um, – the writers make him a, a hero in a very kind of like condescending, like, you know, aw shucks, look at his internal wisdom way. But then they find pretty much every way to have every possible character use an offensive slur to describe him <laughs> that they possibly can. Um, but, but yeah, so what is, uh, cause Steve, you bring this up. Um, what do we think of the, the Glenn Bateman slash Stephen King perspective of, no matter how many times you wipe out human society, we will always start to rebuild and we will rebuild in like the same kind of sociological issues will come up and we'll divide into this kind of dualistic ideas of good and evil. And, and, and what was your kind of, what, what, what's your response to that, that perspective on, on sociology and, and that perspective? I mean, it's, uh, it's a frustrating, it's a frustrating moral to take away from the story. Because I think Stephen King very much does come down on um, that, like, we're just going to do it all over again. Uh, And so there's, in a way, it leaves the reader kind of no satisfying way out. Um, By the end, uh, spoiler, uh, evil is defeated. Um, But but then almost immediately, Boulder starts to become not this, like, hope for the future, but, like, a place that our main characters eventually start leaving because it's just reproducing the patterns of the old society. And that's like really unsatisfying in terms of mm-hmm. a grand, you know, if you're going to do this grand good versus evil uh, uh, quest, um, you want at the end, some kind of solution. And we, we neither get the solution on behalf of the characters nor on behalf of society. Right. Like one of the last scenes in the book is um, the, the characters are leaving in part. One of, one of the things they mention is that the, the city council that they've formed is now debating whether to arm the police force that they've established for this community, 
which I think is just very telling for that, you know, kind of returning to the same old. I mean, I think I, I think if you're going to approach this book, and I think maybe it's safe to approach this book kind of in biblical terms. Um, oh, very much so. The book certainly is written in those terms. It's yeah. right. It's, it's basically a Christian ethic. Um, and so I, I think I would push back just a little bit on the idea that the characters don't have agency. I, I just think that their agency is all self-contained. And it's, it's, it basically leaves you with, like, humanity is doomed, but individual humans can be saved, whatever that means. Right. And that makes sense, and that's actually a very... I guess what I should say is that they don't have agency in regard to the main plot, but they have agency in regard to how they respond to those events. And that, that you're right, is a very, very Christian ethic of, you know, the story of history is already written, but how you respond, do you do the right thing or the wrong thing? Knowing it won't change the Uber story, but it affects who you are. Is that kind of more the agency you're talking about? Yeah, I think I think that's where the agency is, you know, to be found in this book. Right. And I think, uh, as you were saying, Harold and Nadine are great examples of this. Both of them go along with the sort of preordained actions that they're there to play. They, you know, they resort to the kind of violence that has sort of always been planned out for them. But in a way, each of them gets sort of their own redemption mini arc, not not in the case that they can actually undo anything that they've done or that they ever, you know, kind of wind up making a difference against the way that things are kind of been determined to play out. But each of them sort of gets to end their life on their own terms and having recognized the mistakes they've made. Right. Nadine does a, Nadine's actions have a little more effect because she basically is able to kill herself while carrying Randall Flagg, the, the devil figure's uh, child. Right. Um, which Harold just kind of takes his own life, but at least recognizes that <clears throat> how wrong he was. And, you know, Nadine eventually, you know, she isn't even able to take her life by her own hand, but she pushes... Randall Flagg, the devil figure, until he snaps and kind of acts out of the entropy that's taking down the evil side. Yeah, that's that. Yeah, thank. Um, part of why I got confused on that. Uh, spoiler for the 1994 miniseries, which we'll be reviewing in a coming episode. Though warning, it's very very bad. <laughs> um, uh, Randall Flagg has a mullet to show you just how evil he is. Oh, there you um, go. <laughs> But in that one, uh, Nadine does actually take her own life. And so that's, mm. I think, where I was getting confused for a second. That's so, an interesting so of, difference. I, I'm curious what you think of what King is saying about the nature of good and evil in this book. Because on the one hand, we do get this incredibly dualistic idea. You know, there's no sort of ethical gray zone somewhere in Utah in the middle. Mm-hmm. There is Boulder, Colorado, forces of light and good. Las Vegas, Nevada, Forces of Darkness. And so it's a very, very dualistic, and, and we have in Randall Flagg on one side, and then on Mother Abigail, who is this very, very old black woman who is kind of the, the conduit of God for the good side. Um, but then as, as you were just saying, Steve, uh, and, and both of you were, the people even in Boulder do have quite a lot of moral complexity and do start to be making some maybe not capital E evil decisions, but some decisions that maybe are not quite the, the Eden that we might have been able to have in the Boulder Free Zone. Um, what 
what's your take on it? Is it because I I think that I think it's easy to see it as this is just a pure duality of good and evil, but that good is complex, even if it's not evil. Do you think is that what King is saying, or is there more of a complexity of there's good and there's evil, but then evil with even within the good, there's a lot of gray. Well, I think even I would say even within the evil, there's a lot of gray because maybe not with Randall Flagg himself, um, but for instance, when Boulder sends folks to Las Vegas to spy on uh, the, the 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 bad side, um, they find that uh, there's a lot of perfectly fine people there right um, they're just normal people um to me it, it kind of boils down to like the good and 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 the bad uh like we all have it in us we all um can receive the dreams leading us to mother abigail or to randall flag and i think what it boils down to is uh good uh, the good people are the people who are motivated by love and connection and support and duty. Um, whereas Randall Flagg appeals to people's fears, people's selfishness, um, their, their, their wish to kind of save themselves uh, or, or get above other people. And because of that, there's like betrayal wrapped into it. And so even though we, at the end, we get this unsatisfactory uh, uh, sort of answer that like evil can never be like totally vanquished. Um, there is also something in it that that sort of points to evil always undoes itself. Right. Interestingly, for the question of agency, I think that one of the other main draws to Las Vegas and to the evil side is not even necessarily mean spiritedness or cowardice but a need for structure there's a line i think that glenn says uh somewhere in there that he thinks that a lot of the tech people are going to wind up in vegas because they need something to do that's yeah. right and it sort of kind of folds in with the the idea that it seems like uh stephen king is advancing here of you know sort of the need for organization and control being the seed of you know, the rise of evil again. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, but even in the good side, yeah, they admit they can't get along without, you know, the organization and the control. Like some of the first things they start to do are form committees. Right. Even though nobody particularly wants to. And, and in a lot of ways, they can't, they couldn't have accomplished any, a lot of the things that they did on the good side without having some of that, which I guess is another, you know, argument for evil kind of always destabilizing itself through its need for a kind of control that's never going to be possible. Right. And so then we will talk about the ending and about how the ending, really the only one who has any agency in causing the ending is Randall Flagg himself, um, if even that. But, But certainly I think one of the things that's really interesting about the way this is set up is you're right. A lot of the people who go towards the dark side, towards the Las Vegas side, it's not because they're like, ha, let's go kill everybody. We're evil. It's, it's, as you said, they want order. They want authority. And a lot of what the story is about is if you go about it with committees and democracy and things like that, you'll maybe get a much more democratic society. But the person over on the other side who says, 
I'm going to make you turn the power on. I'm going to make you, you know, I'm going to basically be a fascist. They literally get the trains running on time a lot faster. And that that's very appealing to people. And I think we're, we're seeing in our own world, you know, that, that when, when things are more chaotic, there is really a pull towards, okay, even this one guy isn't great. He's going to tell us what to do. And so we're going to have structure and order and, and everything will be okay. Mm -hmm. Um, I hadn't really thought about that, but I think you're right. The, the book is a great commentary on that and the – that especially, you know, for folks who are afraid, for folks who are fearful, the, the pull of authority, of someone else's authority taking control can be really appealing. Yeah, all these people just survived the apocalypse. You know, they're, they're scared. They And, yeah, they want something to do. And someone put a tool in my hand and I'll, I'll chip in. And if that chipping in is uh, – uncovering a base in the desert so that we can find fighter jets to go bomb the other group. You know, at least I'm part of something. Mm -hmm. Right. Giving, you know, sort of having a way to handle the grief and the vulnerability of everything that they've just seen, which I think, you know, we can also see happening around us as well. Like, you know, especially I, you know, thinking about how the, early confusion about whether or not masks were helpful kind of solidified into this very polarizing mm -hmm. line through the desert between Las Vegas and Boulder for us. <laughs> right. That's a great point. Well, and so let's talk about the ending somewhat. I know Steve, especially you want to talk about this. Tell us what happens at the end of this book and then let's start getting into your thoughts on it. So the last part of the book uh, involves just this interminable walk um, by three of the main characters from Boulder to Las Vegas to uh, on Mother Abigail's orders to make a stand against the, the dark man, the walking dude, uh, Randall Flagg. Right. And they're completely unsure what they're supposed to do when they get there. Um, luckily, it doesn't matter, because once they get there, they are captured, they are um, kind of paraded out in front of a, a crowd, and Randall Flagg is going to have them publicly executed. Um, and instead of that happening, uh, one of, and we haven't mentioned the Trash Can Man yet, mm -hmm. um, but the Trash Can Man is a little bit... Um, Maybe kind of the more sinister uh, side of King's uh, preoccupation with uh, innocence and um, mentally disabled folks as, like, ultimately innocent. Mm -hmm. um, because the trash can man, uh, unlike Tom, who is a mentally challenged fellow who joins the Boulder side, uh, trash can man is... Uh, a mentally challenged fellow who joins uh, with Las Vegas and he becomes preoccupied with Randall Flagg's mission of like getting these tools of war to like make war on Boulder. Right. Um, and in that last scene, he comes back to Vegas with what is in his mind, the ultimate gift to Randall Flagg, an atomic bomb. Um, and Susan, do you want to take take it from there? Um, sure. So they this uh, he kind of brings the 
the bomb into the central square as they're in the process of having this show execution and um you know it, it's really a gruesome kind of he comes in with you know in the late stages of radiation sickness you know having as he's been promising to the entire book given his life for Randall Flagg specifically and then kind of in the final moments uh it is quite literally a deus ex machina of uh flag against his will and against his better judgment like the kind of spiritual charge that he has built up in himself sets off this atomic bomb right and he nopes out just at the very last minute flag himself but you know there is you know everyone in vegas is sacrificed including you know our protagonists from the good side who have you know, made their stand in being there, but haven't actually taken any meaningful action at all. Yeah, and I think that's a, just a couple quick points. It, it's four. It's four people who set out, but one of them gets hurt along the way, and so doesn't have to, winds up not being there. Um, yeah, I'm finding ways to be able to appreciate that ending more, and this idea of like enjoying the agency of. of the cosmic forces and, and the, the idea of just seeing what happens when you don't have agency. But on some level, I have to admit the ending is just very unsatisfying because as you said, our characters go and take this mighty stand. And if they didn't take that stand, as far as I can tell, everything would have still happened exactly as it did. Um, and uh, we'll get into the theology of this in a minute, but but they make the stand, as you said, because Mother Abigail goes out into the desert and she has this vision as she understands it. And she says, God has ordered you to do this. No food, no clothes. We can't tell you anything. You just have to show that you have faith. Um, this is very sort of uh, what I think is a misunderstanding of the book of Job, but a very Jobian understanding of, you know, blind faith in the face of adversity. Um, what about for you all? Do you find this ending satisfying? Was it kind of... Were you a little frustrated that after all this buildup, it's just that evil winds up defeating itself by being too ambitious and too not paying attention enough to its own minions? Um, was there some importance to the characters taking the stand? What What's your feeling on it? Uh, I mean, I, I I mean, I hate the I hate the ending. Yeah, um, <laughs> I hate it because um, these. So I'm I'm rereading the, the Hobbit right now. And I, I, I can't help but think of all this stuff in kind of Tolkien-esque ways. Uh, mm-hmm. This kind of grandstand between good and evil, um, the interminable walking from place to place. Um, but, uh, and, and also Tolkien, like King, is given to sort of deus ex machina uh, pivots. Right. Mm-hmm. But in a way... The, the the deus ex machina pivots don't work in Tolkien uh, unless the characters have done what they've done. Um, whereas, as you said in this, it doesn't, it, you know, it's like, it's like the joke about uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, it doesn't matter if Indiana Jones is there or not. The Ark is going to kill the Nazis. Um, right. And so it, we've watched these characters go through a ton. They've, uh, they've, suffered they've made choices uh you could argue that they have changed or not changed but 
an ending that is completely independent of those changes and those struggles just to me um, is unsatisfying because uh, ultimately the reason that evil is undone has is only about evil and so what did we even spend all this time watching these good characters for if they are if evil is just undone by itself then what's even the point of following the good characters and their trials and tribulations yeah i had that same issue with that the end didn't feel particularly satisfying but i think you know in terms of as as we're discussing it it starts to make more sense to me you know if the if the whole book is the story of people in the face of events that they cannot control small but meaningful ways in which they themselves are changed then the ending is kind of you know the ultimate expression of that uh if if what we're supposed to take from it is that evil will tear itself apart mm-hmm. then you know the fact that they're present there you know seems to kind of say that but being good matters Right. It might not change anything, but it matters. I don't know if that ending, you know, sets that up particularly uh particularly well because, you know, it's it seems like it seems like it matters that they're there, but I can't I can't say why. <laughs> I don't know if there's anything yeah. that would be different except that maybe they've all of the people are called into this one place to witness their execution. And I feel like I'm really torn on this because I think as we say, I'm kind of talking myself and maybe a little bit talking Susan into the idea that as a as a writing exercise and a sort of subversion of the tropes of this kind of fiction, what he, what King is doing is very interesting and has some interesting commentary. But I have probably picked up the book and reread the first three or four hundred pages many, many times. I think I've only read through that ending twice now because I just mm-hmm. don't find it as interesting. Um, and so, yeah, it's a very interesting kind of back and forth there. Um, what do you think is being, cause actually this is one thing I never really thought of this in terms of as well. If this is kind of like, you know, anytime a book is about a cataclysmic fight between good and evil, to some extent, the author is telling you what they think good people should do in the face of evil. Um, I'm not sure what this book is saying then, because it's saying like, make a stand, but it's also saying like, make a blind sacrifice that you don't understand because it's noble or you know the forces of good are doing these things beyond your control that you don't understand you just have to trust that seems incredibly toxic to me Mm -hmm. um and the idea that at the end of the day you don't have to worry about evil because evil will defeat itself again not been my lived experience very much (laughs) um what what is your how how do you respond to king's message about good and evil Or, or is there some other message he's making that i'm missing there it's it's interesting because it seems like he's talking in the first half of the book versus the last half of the book about two very different kinds of evil. That was one of the things that I was wondering is like, you've got this story of sort of the evil of, you know, the, the evil that's t- try, small e evil that's trying to creep into Boulder of, you know, the toxic way that humans relate to one another. So, but then if that's your concern, why have the large scale supernatural evil in the story? You know, because it seems like there are two very compelling stories here. 
that don't necessarily have all that much to do with each other. There's the story of the plague and the way that humanity lives through it and reestablishes itself. And then there's the story of the showdown between Randall Flagg and God or good with a capital G or whatever's happening there. And it sort of seems like the, the, the way that the book winds up that King is sort of implying that the concerns of individual humans are that small e evil and what they do in the face of it and then the large e evil sort of burns itself out steve i'm curious to uh what you think about that and particularly in terms of you know as you had mentioned the dark tower there's that sort of same cyclical fight against a capital e evil that you wind up pretty much in the exact same place where you started at the end of that story as well. So, you know, I'm curious what your view on that is. Yeah, I, I, and I had heard, I don't know if this is true, maybe you guys can confirm it, but I had heard that part of the reason that King wrote um, The Dark Tower and especially the that he ended it the way that he did was because mm-hmm. everybody hated the ending of The Stand so much. Um, I, I haven't heard that and I haven't read The Dark Tower, but but spoil it away. But that, that, that would make sense. I mean, definitely, you know, writers respond to their responses to the last work. Um, yeah, I, I, it may be apocryphal to say that, but, it, but the, the book certainly does have... Um, it makes sense to me that he might have done that because it certainly has a... Oh, you didn't like the ending of The Stand, huh? I'll show you an ending. <laughs> And they and they end like you said, Susan. They kind of end the same way. Um, the, the the circle the circle starts again. Yeah. Um, and, and just make that explicit for those who haven't read it or don't remember it. It specifically is Randall Flagg once again waking up in a totally different part of the world. It, it seems to be Africa, written in a fairly racist way again. Oh yeah. Um, but just kind of discovering, oh okay, I have another chance. And it's just this idea of like, yep, it keeps the cycle. The cycle. He's ne- he is never fully defeated. Right. As He's long as there defeated. is civilization, there is Randall Flagg to turn it to an evil end. Yeah, and I, I think... Um, and, and maybe this this point is anathema to, to the premise of your podcast, Matthew, so I'm sorry <laughs> if, if I'm going to say it. I can um, edit you out, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, like The Dark Tower, The Stand is... Um, and, and like uh, uh, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, like for all its problems, it's just kind of fun. It's just yeah. fun to read. It's fun to go on this adventure with these characters. And yeah, they start, they're, they're, you could argue they're irrelevant at the end, and you could argue that the circle just starts again. But boy, you could tell Stephen King had fun writing it because he just wouldn't stop. Yeah. And <laughs> I had fun reading it because I keep reading it. Yeah, I mean. I, I wouldn't start a podcast. Of, I wouldn't start a series of uh, podcast episodes about it if I didn't think it was a lot of fun. And like I said, I find, I, I find some of. I'll, I'll back up to give a very different example, but it sort of fits. There's a movie that was made in the '90s, I believe, called A Time to Kill, which is it's with Matthew McConaughey and Samuel Jackson. Uh, it's a fantastic movie, and I I describe it as a very entertaining, very well made argument that I completely disagree with. Because it, it is a defense of vigilantism and vigilantism for a very, very good reason, but in a legal way that I just don't agree with. Um, and I think the same thing can be here. I think it's, it's fun to look at the messages King is giving, and I think many of them are 
I really resonate with. Um, and the ending, I, I, I have problems with. And I wonder if oh, part of it is, is it that he was making a point I disagree with? Or did he, is he not even maybe really realizing the point he was making in some ways? You know, because it's, like you said, it seems <laughs> like he stapled the, I think you said this before, Susan, he's kind of stapled these two different stories together without necessarily realizing maybe they're actually kind of contradictory in some ways. Um, this one about sort of the little decisions we all make and the, the moral greatness of it all, and this, this other about the the very binary good and evil. Um, and Steve, I wanted to kind of take it a little diff- different direction, but on the same idea, because you know Stephen King very well. One thing that surpri- surprises me is that this book is incredibly Christian. And the mythology of it is, is very sort of Christian-inspired, but yeah, that's true with a lot of things that aren't necessarily overtly Christian. But the the, mytho- the the language that winds up getting used, the character of Mother Abigail, who is the guiding character of the, the forces of good, she is very clearly a Christian and uses very Christian language. And a couple of the characters have this idea of, you know, I think that there is a fundamental good that she represents, but that the, the Christian metaphor for that is not necessarily the metaphor that we buy into. But then... You know, she says to characters like, oh, it's fine that you don't believe in God. God believes in you. And then everything she prophesies turns out to be right. Um, and certainly there's an awful lot of biblical imagery in everything that happens. The the holy fire that comes down that, uh, in the exact words of the book, you know, uh, purifies the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Uh, or burns the righteous and the righteous unlike. Um, Randall Flagg is literally crucifying people. Um did this book feel very overtly Christian to you all in that way? And and my impression is that that's not something that's common to Stephen King's books. And Steve, I'm wondering if you have any more knowledge on that. Um, looking at it uh, in the corpus of Stephen King, I would say um, that while it, it represents a bit of a, a Christian ethic, I, I I think at the heart of it, it's it's less a story necessarily about Christianity, strictly speaking, and more a story about kind of Americana. Like Mm. most of the main characters are not religious. Um, Nick is explicitly an atheist, even after he meets mother Abigail. And, but they do the right thing. They go through the motions. They do what mother Abigail, you know, to me, it seems like, you know, like a small town in Maine where folks go to the church, but they're not uh, not very zealous about it. Um, and I think you can read that into a lot of King's work. Um, he doesn't strike me as particularly religious, but he has a respect for kind of Americana, I guess Americana Protestantism in a in a very kind of quaint way. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I like the idea that this is more about Americana, but as you said, like Americana is very Christian. And so that's the mythos that it draws upon. That, that, that does seem to make more sense to me. What was your take on it, Susan? Yeah, I like, uh, you know, particularly since so much of this book is a travelogue of Americana, like the, uh, you know, they literally walk from one end of the country to the other or not the same characters necessarily, but there is this journey from both coasts sort of to the heart of the country. And um, there's a lot of kind of discussion of those 
quote unquote American values right. of you know perseverance and democracy and uh that along with the numerous mentions of the book of job and you know it's been a long time since i've read anything you know of the actual book of job but sort of the idea being you know not even necessarily faith in god but just staying you know choosing a side and staying with it right making your stand on it right which I will say, in the at least here, it's somewhat subtle. In the miniseries, at least every half hour, someone says, you know, now is the time when you have to make your stand. Um, it's just they hit you over the head. Uh, with so get it? <laughs> we have a title, people. One thing I'm hoping for from the new show, a lot more subtlety. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, yes. So what are some of your favorite characters? Uh, what are the ones that you, you kind of you thought were most interesting or sort of made some interesting choices that you'd be most curious to see how they're going to get represented in this new miniseries that's coming out or limited series, I guess is the current term now. For me, one of the things that I found uh, unsettling about the book when I first read it, um, when I was, you know, in middle school or high school, maybe um, is that right off the bat, I knew that Harold was a flawed character, but mm-hmm. I couldn't help but see some of myself in him. Yeah, me too. And like watching him rationalize his way into uh, kind of joining the ultimate evil uh, was, I thought, one of the more in a in a book with not that many character journeys. I found that one kind of haunting and kind of interesting. Yeah. I I remember feeling at the time, like, that I really wanted to identify with him because I felt victimized in the same way that he does. And that I was kind of almost mad at the book for, for turning that around. And then honestly, one of the things that really kind of shook me on that and made me think King has more of a point than I, want, than I wanted him to was Columbine. You know, when mm-hmm. we saw two people who, I you know, I... There's 8 million interpretations of what happened at Columbine, but I think one of the ones that I've always found very credible is that you did have two young men who were very badly bullied and and really had a lot of social problems and and mental problems, but then did turn to a very evil direction and and towards a great deal of violence. And, you know, I I think that's that's what the version of it was 20 years ago. Today, you know, all the stories we read about the Dylan Roofs or the um, Kyle, the guy who... Uh, shot up the Black Lives Matter parade or any of these stories mm-hmm. about people who are, you know, have problematic childhoods and, and become radicalized. And it, it I, I always think that, that the knowledge of what happened to them is important not to sympathize or not to justify, but just to sort of have a like, how can we stop this happening? Um, but I, I do agree. I, I, you know, there's a thing we often talk about in the show in general about how you can't really get away with a stereotype unless if it's the only one of that group you have, you know, if you have 10 Asian characters and one of them is very smart at math, then great, because you're not saying the only one there. Um, and maybe see, I don't know if this is how you feel. I wish we'd had another character who I could relate to like that, who doesn't make those same decisions because I do find it very believable that a Herald could make those decisions. I think also 
only one out of every 100 Herald makes those decisions. And I wish we'd had some indication of he's not saying that every, you know, socially awkward geek boy is going to turn out to be this terrible person because of the resentment they can't let go of. Yeah, I think when I reread it more recently, I think I kind of imprinted that on the character of Nick. Because he gets bullied a lot. He's not a sort of put-upon genius in his own mind the way that Harold is. But he is, um, he doesn't speak and he can't hear. Um, and he gets abused in various ways because of that. But he ultimately chooses differently and becomes one of, you know, one of the, like, angels of the story. Right. Yeah, I guess I can see that. What about for you, Susan? I'm, I'm sure you have a very different perspective on, on, on that character. What what was your take on Harold and his journey? So my take on Harold, like I, I, uh, I guess, you know, the Harold and Fran story was pretty compelling to me, but I, you know, identified immediately with Fran mm. as sort of the, uh, you know, a woman who's made some choices that she had been vilified for and who is you know, strong-willed in wanting to push forward with her, you know, push forward along her own path, but, you know, not sort of not wanting to hurt Harold and being put in the regrettable position of that being inevitable. Um, I think that in the beginning, you know, as we first met Harold, I had a lot of frustration with that character. Partly because it was so tropey and, you know, like, very much like all of the fedora-tipping caricatures that we were presented with. Uh, Toward, you know, as the story continued, I, you know, had more and more sympathy for him, but still sort of that frustration that he made, he was made that, and I'm trying to remember exactly the wording there, that they use that King used, but uh, he made a deliberate choice to center the victimization and tragedy that he had suffered in his past as what he was going to build his sense of self around as opposed to censor or to centering, you know, the tragedy and hardship that he was sharing with everybody else in the world and kind of learning from that, that there was, there could be more to his life than putting himself in the role of victim. That's right. You're such a genius. Why don't you help us get the electric grid up in Boulder? Yeah. And I, I think the, the point at which I felt the most sympathy and, uh, connection to Harold was the moment at which you know he realizes that he can be different people don't see him the way that he remembers seeing himself and being treated and that struggle of this has been the thing that's shaped my identity for so long that in the end even though there's something a lot more positive offering itself I can't give it up. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think I had never really put this together until now, but I think it's why one of the most important parts of the book is the fact that Harold's story is very much mirrored by, quite literally, Larry's story. 
because mm-hmm. Larry was the opposite end socially, but it's the same kind of thing where he feels very trapped by the way people see him and that he's been, you know, even his mother describes him as a taker and says, you know, there's always been this hard part about you. I mean, and, and there again, I, I uh, definitely had a very loving relationship with my mother, but a very tough relationship with my mother at times. And, and I, I really felt very sympathetic for him as someone who, you know, I, I'd also not been the greatest person when I was younger and really struggled to find people who could see me in a different way. And one of the things that the book sets up that I think is really interesting is along the way, Harold is leaving these signs to say like, hey, here's where we're going next. Here's where we're going next. Here's the thing we did, you know, as well as leaving these clues like Larry is able to figure out what Harold did to, you know, get fuel for the motorcycles and stuff like that. And so Larry has this incredibly heroic view of Harold that is eventually very disappointed by the time Mm. that Larry meets Harold. And just kind of further completing the triangle of it all, Nadine at first very much wants to be with Larry. And she knows that if she is, it will sort of sever her connection with the Dark Man. And she rejects him for a while, and only after Larry gets with someone else does she come back. And and the agency of the other woman in this is appallingly bad, but that's another story. Um... But the point being that there's all of these connections in which, like, Nadine is this sort of... Because when Larry rejects her, she goes to Harold and basically, you know, offers herself up to Harold as a gift from the... Uh, as a gift from the Dark Man, uh, from Randall Flagg, as kind of a, a sexual plaything. Um, you know, we can do everything but that one particular act because she has to be a virgin. And, and here again, Stephen King does something that he has fun doing where he wants you to see the moral depravity of characters through the depravity of the sex they're having, which he's going to describe in very lurid, very detailed terms. Because, of course, what lurid, terrible sexuality that none of us should ever take pleasure in reading That's right. page after page <laughs> after page about. That's um, right. But it does, I think, set up, I, I think it really sets up this wonderful dichotomy of the, the image that people have of them is very different, but both Harold and Larry, people see them incredibly differently. Uh, then they do. They, they both were seen very badly, and they both have the choice. And Larry makes one choice, and Harold makes the other. Um, mm-hmm. Like one thing I think is fascinating is, as far as I can tell, Larry dies without anyone in the community having put together that he was Larry Underwood who released that song that everyone was singing the the day the day before the pandemic happened. You know, that's um, right. Yeah, he cuts his ties from that past. Right, and Harold gets. You know, Harold has. You know, he starts working with people who really respect him, and he gets a new nickname, and people who just really admire him, and he he has that chance, and he makes this conscious choice not to, which I think is is heartbreaking, but also, I mean, it's what we see in our world. What about any other characters? I don't want to go too much longer, but uh, any other characters who really resonated for you or you wanted to talk about, either for good or bad reason? Well, I was going to pose the question of who you guys think is the main character. America, honestly. I, I think it's the... It is such an ensemble story, but I, I think because in some ways I find the stories of, you know, the the radio host who, in the last days of the pandemic, breaks the orders to go on the radio and tell people the truth about what's happening until he gets shot, and the father of many daughters who is dealing with the <clears throat> the grief of him being alive while everyone isn't. Um, I think it's kind of a weird take because it's obviously there are specific characters, but that's. That's to me the main character is just the country, it's humanity and how they deal with this. Um, mm. That sounds like a very pretentious, like lit two hundred two class answer. Uh, Susan, <laughs> what do you got for us? I mean, 
my first thought was uh, Stuart Redman, the uh, sort of, you know, he's kind of one of the first people we meet in the in the opening chapters who lives to the end of the book. Spoiler, but uh, um, and he's kind of, you know, one of it. He, he kind of reads like one of King's, you know, self stand in characters, you know, a fairly plain spoken guy who, you know, quintessential american yeah the the quintessential american and uh his journey is kind of the journey that we take throughout the entire book like he starts in east texas where the first cases are reported he goes to the cdc centers where the cover-up is being enacted and then you know eventually I suppose he doesn't make it all the way to Vegas, but uh, I like the take that America is the main character here. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, most of the things that sort of, most of the actual emotional weight and uh, uh, identification of it is just seeing all of these vignettes from everyday life yeah, uh, kind of being elevated as this is the last time this thing is ever going to happen. And Stuve to me is the, the the quintessential like crux of this question for me because you're right in many ways he is portrayed as the central protagonist. He is one of those four people who goes on this walk to make this epic stand, but because he breaks his leg, they have to leave him behind. And it's this poignant scene where it feels like they're all leaving him to die because they they can't wait. They have to go on. They have to have faith. And the result is that he lives and everyone else dies, and he has nothing to do with the great cataclysm that defeats evil um, right. so he's like the sort of poster boy of i just happened to be along for the ride while all the story happened you know um but yeah what what up for you steve who, who is your main character um I, I i guess i think that's a pretty compelling um uh i, I think because like because the use of geography in this book is so um detailed and like the world of the novel it feels lived in um yeah, it's the point where so. king uses very specific terminology to talk about buildings and the soda that people are drinking and uh the drugs that they steal from the drugstore to treat their wounds it's all just so lived in and so vital like you feel mm-hmm. all of it and so i think um, that America is the main character. I think, I think you're right. Um, and I guess, I, I guess I kind of see, see Stu Redman as, as kind of standing in for that. Mm-hmm. Um, gosh, it is funny to think that he, he didn't even make it to Vegas. <laughs> yeah. And you can't even argue that his, his role in that mission was to bring, I mean, I guess you could argue that his role in that was to bring news of the destruction of Vegas to Boulder with Tom's help. Right. But ultimately, it's like, it's Tom who does that. Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's very true. And it's interesting because I, what you're talking about, the lived-in world, honestly, that's the thing I want from almost all of my fandoms, you know? I love the MCU, but I want more stories about how do average people respond to the fact 
you know, how does everyday life change knowing that there are superheroes and supervillains? Um, part of why I like the TV show The Mandalorian so much is because these epic stories of Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader and, and Rey and, and Jin and, and are wonderful stories. But I want to know, what's life like for your average just workaday person on a planet knowing these galactic events have happened? And, you know, I really like the shows that kind of fill in some of those gaps. Um, the Stand feels to me like the most lived-in universe that I've ever really experienced in that way. Maybe except for The Wire, which is all about the universe. But, um... Because, yeah, it, it just you get such a picture of this cataclysmic thing has happened and how does it affect every different level of society, every different strata. Um, certainly every different society of white American society. Um, there's an awful lot that's left out. But, um, right. Mm-hmm. I say that, so I, think, I, I will say I think also, and I'd be curious for listeners, for me it feels like every strata because I'm a white person. I'd be very curious to hear someone who, from a different background, like does it feel – does this not feel like a lived-in universe because you see a lot of your own experiences or, or other people's experiences not present in the book? It's kind of interesting like to think that a lot of the characters that aren't, you know, what average American white guys, even if their main characters are kind of being used as vessels for the magic in the story, like Mother Abigail, who, mm-hmm. you know, discusses at least like the huge swath of American of American life that she's lived through being born in 1882 or I forget when it was, but you know, it's, it's not so much like they seem more like, you know, these are characters through whom whatever powers, supernatural powers Stephen King is talking about moves rather than characters who have kind of American lives that feel as real to the author as the other ones he's talking about. Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. So any other kind of last things either one of you wanted to touch on before we wrap this up? If we're going to talk about, you know, we've we've all alluded, you know, various points um, to Stephen King's, like, blind spots on what Americana is mm-hmm. uh, and all of that. And I think I, I haven't seen the 1990 uh, miniseries. Um, I hope one of the things that they do for this new miniseries is um, they've they've got to deal with the racial representations in this book. Yeah, yeah. Because it's just look, I love Stephen King, but he I I don't think Stephen King is racist, but I do think non-white folks are other to him, yeah. and it comes across so glaringly in this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a very good way to put it. I think he is, and it's, I think, I mean, we can argue about the definition of racism. To me, it is a kind of racism, but it's very, you know, it's very different than sure. the hurt one. It, but it's a, you know, he doesn't understand the limits of his own perspective. And so he writes in sweeping, generalized ways from his own perspective. Um, and I think I agree with you. I would very much like to see you know, one of those main characters be race switched in some way, uh, or rewritten in some way to, to be from a different perspective. Um, I would like to see a lot more agency for the women characters, um, and not to have it so often. I mean, every woman character I can think of, except Mother Abigail, is defined largely by her sexuality. Um, and Mother Abigail is defined by her age and race. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and, and her being the the mouthpiece of a, in her mind, male figure, God. 
Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I think it's a really good point. A good, good, good kind of last thing to think about is that I would really like to to see more of that representation. I guess like you know, Mother Abigail reminds me of a lot of you know Stephen King's other black characters, like you know, for instance, in the Green Mile or in you know, in some ways in it. You know, the sort of you, I am using you as a stand-in for, you know, all of the magic that's happening right now. Right. It's just the, the magical black character. There's a name for it that I'm not going to use, but the that, that particular yeah. cliche. I think, yeah, I didn't even thought about that. She's a perfect stand-in for that. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts about what we'd like to maybe see from the series? Uh, or what, like, uh, I think the casting is somewhat known. Um, see, interestingly, even though I, I think... Um, there need to be more folks of color and more women brought to the fore in in this story. I think because of the magical black person trope and and Stephen King's like leaning so hard into it, mm-hmm. I I almost wish that they had made the mother Abigail character not black. I can just see for that. that reason. I can see that. Uh, I do see that. Um. Uh... Uh, an actor named Jovan Adepo, who's a uh, British British American actor uh, who's black, is going to be playing Larry Underwood. So at least that okay. one, that one well, character is going to be switched out. Uh, Ezra Miller is playing Trash Can Man, which is, uh, I think, a really interesting choice. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be uh, gonna be interesting to see that. Well, thank you all so much. This has been a fantastic conversation. Um, really, uh, I got some really great insight about the book. I hope you all enjoyed this as well. Um, and to our listeners, what do you all think? Have you read the book? Are you super excited for the new show? Um, did you find a, a much deeper meaning to the ending than we did? Um, or a great love for the plot that necessarily we did not? Uh, or there are parts of our takes that you do or don't agree with? We would love to hear from you. You can find us at Twitter, on Facebook, or an email at SuperheroEthics uh, or, or SuperheroEthics at gmail.com. You can also go to the Stranded Panda website, uh, StrandedPanda.com, and just click on either Superhero Ethics or Pandavision and get all the contact information there. And I say Pandavision because this episode will also go out on Pandavision. And Pandavision is the, the podcast where we really dive into, you know, ongoing universes that, that don't have sort of a larger universe. They don't have an extended universe. It's just that one TV show or that one set of movies. And so The Stand's going to be perfect for it. When that new series comes out on CBS, Ashley Coffin and I will be recording an episode about that every week. So... Definitely please do check that out on Stranded Panda. You can also check out some of my work. I've been doing a repeating series on The Mandalorian, on Star Wars Universe podcast, obviously this Superhero Ethics podcast. Also on Stranded Panda, you can find a lot of other great podcasts about other content universes, MCU cast, DC, Star Trek, a lot of other good things, all there at StrandedPanda.com. So thank you so much. If you've enjoyed this, please leave us a five-star review uh, or any star review, whatever you think you can uh, give. Let us know what you think in the feedback, and have a great day.